We're glad to have you here with us. Pastor Gary's away for the next uh, two Sundays, so keep him in your prayers. He and Barbara are enjoying some much-needed rest up in Oneonta. And I gotta say, you know, it's, it is encouraging to see the church filling up a little bit, and uh, also just to see children here. I know it's not ideal, the fact that we, we don't have children's uh, ministry running right now, but uh, I want everyone to know that families are welcome here. I've got my whole clan in the back pew over there, so dad's watching, by the way. I have a good view from here, so. Uh, but children, you're absolutely welcome here. We're, we're glad to have you. So I've got this series in Jonah that I started back in March uh, on, the, on the cusp of the pandemic shutdown. And I don't know how many of you actually remember it, but it was, it was early on as we were just dipping our toe into the waters of live streaming. And for that reason, it was a little less than ideal, and that's charitable, uh, and I can say that because I was part of, you know, putting that together. Uh, so I don't know if you could tolerate that message uh, or if you even remember it. So what I'd like to do to help us all out this morning is to, to give a little bit of a recap of Jonah chapter 1, and then for the next three weeks we'll, we'll be in uh, Jonah 2 today, and then 3 and 4 the next two weeks. So you'll remember that Jonah is a prophet called by God. This book is unique because it's not as uh, much about his message as it is about him as a prophet. His message was a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, who were, by the way, enemies of God's people. Jonah's response was, no way, I'm not having any part of that. And he runs and he hides. And we saw some of the effects of sin. One of them is that sin makes us foolish. Sin makes us think that we know better than God how to make ourselves happy. Sin clouds our thinking. We, we think that our sin, doing things our own way, apart from God's way, will lead to happiness and to life, when in reality it ultimately leads to death. Sin is foolish and sin clouds our thinking. And there's this theme in Jonah of moving away from the Lord and going down. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he flees the presence of the Lord and goes down to Joppa. In verse 5, Jonah goes down into the inner part of the ship during this deadly storm. And in verse 15, Jonah is tossed overboard down into the raging sea. And we saw God's response, which was surprising but gracious. He graciously seeks Jonah. And he does so in uh, a way that we wouldn't expect. He uses a deadly storm. He uses a deadly storm to get Jonah's attention, to wake him up. And we talked about how this is a tender and a compassionate uh, uh, justice Uh, This is a a compassionate uh, violence, if you will, that God uses to wake up Jonah. And Jonah responds by telling the sailors, toss me into the sea, it's because of me. And, And we saw there how Jonah stops running in that moment and he owns up to his sin. He owns it. He stops running and he trusts himself completely to the justice and mercy of God. And we stopped there, seeing that it was 
beneath the waves that Jonah would encounter the grace of God. And God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah where he stayed for three days and three nights. And that's where we stopped. And so this brings us to chapter two, which is a prayer of Jonah from the belly of this fish. Now you'd think that three days and three nights in the belly of a fish would give a person some time to contemplate their life choices that led them up to that moment. Uh, I think that would be the case for me. You know, what in the world brought me to here? (laughs) How did I get to this point in my life where I'm in the belly of a fish, right? And it certainly gave Jonah some time to get some perspective. And we'll see this in his prayer. I mentioned this in March, but you need to know that there is a degree of skepticism on the part of some as to the historicity of Jonah, uh, just because of the presence of this great fish that swallows him. And I mentioned this in March, uh, but, you know, briefly, my quick answer to that is, in the Gospels, Jesus talked about Jonah as if he was a real historical person for whom these things actually happened to. And if you die and rise from the dead uh, and you have a different opinion, come talk to me. But I'm going to go 10 times out of 10 with Jesus on this one, uh, that Jonah is a historical person for whom these things actually happened. But another thing to consider is that ancient mythological writings uh, tend to include lots of embellishment in the story. And that's not something that we find here in Jonah. In fact, this great fish is only mentioned three times in the whole book. And a lot of times when people think of Jonah, they think of the whale. Uh, But really, this big fish is only mentioned three times. And in those three times, it's not embellished. It's very matter-of-fact. You know, oh, by the way, he was swallowed by a great fish and he was there for three days and three nights. And then it moves on to Jonah's prayer. It's not embellished like you would expect for uh, mythological writing. But there's a danger in all this fish talk, though. Uh, Thomas John Carlyle wrote this. I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside Jonah. And so let's not make this mistake together this morning. Let's not become so obsessed with this great fish that we miss what happens in the heart of Jonah. And this brings us to Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to read from the ESV this morning. So welcome you to join me. It'll be up on the screen as well. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet 
you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we look intently at it, that you would uh, open our hearts to hear it and to receive it, that it may change us, that it may make us more like you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of this message is Grace Beneath the Waves. And the main idea that I want you all to take away this morning is this. Our greatest need is to understand the grace of God. That is our greatest need. Jonah was a deeply flawed person, but he was a religious professional. He was a He was a a preacher. He was a a prophet even. But a prophet who was blind to the grace of God. And his need, and our greatest need, is to know and understand the grace of God. Being a, a good moral person, or even a religious person, is not the same thing as being a Christian, as being a follower of Christ. And the foundation of our faith that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is grace. Is grace. And we need to understand it. In the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians, Paul wrote this, that the gospel has been bearing fruit in them since the day they heard and understood the grace of God. You see it? Understanding the grace of God is, is synonymous with conversion. It's, it's not until we truly understand the grace of God that we are transformed and that we bear fruit. And it's our desire as a church to have an impact for the gospel in our community. We have this new vision statement that Chris read this, this morning for us. Uh, and let me just remind you of the first lines of, of that vision statement. It, it reads, Fishkill Baptist Church will be a gospel-shaped church that embodies passion for God and compassion for people. And if we're to become a gospel-shaped church, we need to be a people who understand the grace of God. Throughout history, the church has been transformed by people who understood the grace of God. I I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts. He was a, a murderer, a persecutor of God's people, of the church. And he encounters the grace of God and he goes from from being a murderer to being one of the greatest missionaries of the church. 
That's because he understood the grace of God. And then you see someone like Peter who was hiding in fear and even denied knowing Jesus three times. He encounters and he understands the grace of God. And he goes from being fearful to being fearless to the point of giving his life for Jesus. You see someone like Martin Luther who was a monk and a professor in a church that had lost its way and he becomes a champion for grace, willing to be excommunicated from the church even. History contains a long line of such people who were transformed by understanding the grace of God. And, and the question for all of us this morning is, are you in that line? Are you in that line of people throughout history who've been transformed by understanding and knowing the grace of God? If a prophet like Jonah can miss it, we could miss it too. This prayer of Jonah in chapter two is all about grace. You could make a case for this entire book being about grace. So this morning we're gonna look at Jonah's prayer in chapter two and we're gonna ask three questions. We're gonna ask just three questions. What is the grace of God? How do we get the grace of God? And how do we know we have the grace of God? So those are the three questions we're gonna look at and ask of the text this morning. So our first question, what is the grace of God? Remember the theme in Jonah of going down? Look at verse six. Here we see Jonah completes his downward journey and has reached the very roots of the mountains beneath the sea. You can't get much further down than that. But then we see this little three-letter word, Y-E-T, yet. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the grace of God. But let us unpack this a little bit. I want to make sure you understand this. The Hebrew word used for grace in the Old Testament is the word hen, and it means favor. We've got our Hebrew scholar here, Nicholas, right? Is that correct? Hen, right? Favor. Uh, the idea behind favor is to be welcomed into a place that you have no business being. That's hen. That's favor. And we see an example of this in Genesis chapter 33 where uh, Jacob uh, has... Uh, just done some dastardly things to his family. He's cheated his brother Esau, who is very angry with him. Jo uh, not Jonah, Jacob. Jacob flees his brother Esau, who's angry. And it's been many years. He's returning home now. And it, it would be an understatement to say that Jacob was a little anxious about seeing Esau. And it's, it's hen, this is what he wants most from Esau's hen. He wants favor. He wants to find favor with his brother. This is grace. It's favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It's being let in to a place that you have no business being. You have no right to be there and you're being led in by someone who's not obligated to let you be there. That's grace. What do I mean by being let in? We have this 
fundamental need as human beings, I think, uh, to, to be let in, to, to know that you're part of some inner circle, that you're accepted, that you have a place where you know where you belong. I think teens especially feel this pretty strongly, you know, just developmentally where they're at, just this need to, to know they belong and that they're accepted, but, but we all do. Whether it's a particular social circle or a group of uh, professional colleagues or a sports team, the irony sometimes for teens is that they would say, oh, no, I don't care about belonging. I don't care about being with an in crowd. Uh, but the irony is that uh, they're wanting to be in with the crowd who doesn't want to be in. But the point is that these are people who are significant to you. And we all have this desire to be led in by those who are most significant to us. And maybe you're here this morning or online and, and you've never kind of broken into that group, whatever it is. Or maybe you've broken into the group and you're there, but you've discovered that uh, it still doesn't satisfy and that you're still left with this ache. The gospel comes to us all to say that the ones who are most significant to us, the ones that we want to be led in by, they are just shadows that represent the only one that really counts, the only one that we really need to be led in by, and that's our creator. He is the one that your heart really aches for and yearns for. He is the only one you really need to be led in by. So grace is being led into a place where you don't deserve to be by a person who's not obligated to let you be there. So we've covered this piece of what it means to be let in. Now let's look uh, at this uh, being undeserved and unobligated piece. And I want to clarify this with three, uh, three examples, really. Uh, so example number one, you are an employer. How many of you work? Hopefully most of us, right? Uh, and, and thank God during this uh, pandemic and all the shutdowns, I think uh, we weren't terribly impacted by that in our church. Uh, but you work a job. It's payday. You get your paycheck. Is that grace? No. Your employer is obligated to pay you. You could sue them if they don't pay you. You've worked a job. You've, you've done work for your employer. You uh, are deserving. Okay? So your, your employer is obligated and you are deserving. So that's not grace. That's example one. Example two. You're a teacher who's recently retired and your colleagues get together and they take you out for a nice dinner and they buy you a, a fancy gift. Is that grace? Not really. Because while you may be deserving, you've spent your entire career shaping and molding the minds of children. You may be des deserving, but your colleagues are not obligated. There's no contract that says they have to take you out to dinner and be nice to you. So they're not obligated, but you're somewhat deserving. So that's not really pure grace either. Third example, my wife and I used to live in Gloucester in, in an apartment where we had a neighbor who lived above us who loved to play loud music late at night. Led Zeppelin was his favorite. We know. And when I say late at night, 
I mean, like two, three, four o'clock in the morning. I'm talking early morning, late at night. We're, we're normal people should be sleeping. And I remember going up there one time and knocking on his door and just saying, hey, could, could you turn it down just a little bit? Or, you know, maybe at three in the morning you use headphones, you know, just to be courteous. Uh, and, and he would turn it down. Uh, but it was a recurring thing. It, it would happen again. Uh, now, uh, imagine... This didn't happen, by the way. And by the way, we have great neighbors now. I have one who might be watching this morning, so we, we love our neighbors. Uh, they don't play loud music late at night. <laughs> uh, so imagine if this had happened, if I went and knocked on his door and said, hey, can you turn the music down, please? It's, you know, we're trying to sleep. Uh, and he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And he shuts the door and turns it up even louder. And then maybe the next day, my wife and I decide, hey, let's listen to some music. He calls the police on us. They're disturbing the peace down there. You know, can you get those people to be quiet? Man. Now suppose this didn't happen. Suppose this happened. Suppose my neighbor upstairs got really sick. And my wife and I decide, hey, let's run some errands for him. And let's bring him some meals. Is that grace? Is he deserving? No. Are we obligated? Now, that's grace. That's grace. Anyone who truly understands grace has this three-letter word in their hearts. Y-E-T. Yet. Jonah discovered it. He went down to the roots of the mountain. Yet. God brought him up from the pit. Did Jonah do anything to deserve this? No. Was God obligated to bring him in? No. Yet, God raised him up from the pit and brought him in. That's grace. So how do we get the grace of God? Question number two. Remember Colossians 1, 6, the grace of God comes to you when you understand the grace of God. The gospel comes to you when you understand the grace of God. The day you understand God's grace is the day you simultaneously understand how little you deserve and how unfathomable is the mercies and grace of God. It's the day you understand those two things. It's when you understand that the only thing God owes you is hell. Yet, yet you are let in by the only one who really matters into the inner circle, the only inner circle that really counts. Not because you deserve it, not because God owes it to you, but because of the free grace of God that comes to you because Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death, and he rose to life on the third day to forgive your sin. You weren't deserving and he wasn't obligated. That's grace. The day you understand the grace of God is the day you cry out like Jonah in verse two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol or the grave I cried out and you heard my voice. That's the day you understand grace. 
And Paul gives us uh, this promise in Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Look with me now at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Another way to say that is that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. In other words, if, if you're holding on to something other than God to make you feel significant or to give you meaning, this is essentially blocking the grace of God from coming into your life. If you're clinging on to something other than God to give you meaning and significance, you're forfeiting the grace that could be yours. Here's one example. One common idol for many is self-righteousness. Those who are self-righteous believe that on some level, God owes me something. This, this represents a low view of sin. And, and they think that, that most people are generally good and deserving of God's favor. And they think that God, if he's fair, grades on a curve. And they can look around and see that, hey, I'm, compared to most people, I'm, I feel pretty good about myself. You know, I feel pretty good about my chances. I think God would be pretty pleased with my life if I compare myself to other people. They think that God owes them something. And the irony in this is that uh, they're, they're appealing to God's fairness as the basis of uh, having favor and being let in. But if God was really fair and gave them what they deserved, they would only get hell. This applies to religious people too. Just because you're doing a lot of religious activity does not mean that you understand the grace of God. As long as you believe that God owes you something, you have not understood the grace of God. Other people have a low view of God's grace. They may have hit rock bottom like Jonah, and they may be socially outcast, and they may have been rejected and judged by pretty much everyone they can think of, and for that reason they think, you know, God probably thinks the same. They project that onto God and think, you know what, I've messed up so bad. Or I've, I've done just too many despicable things in my life that I, I don't think God will think twice about me. I don't, think, I don't think he could let me in. The grace of God is the great leveler of the curve. And the gospel comes to all as grace not a scorecard. It's grace. No person is so good that they don't need the grace of God and no person is so bad that they can't find the grace of God. Amen? Understanding these two things, the depth of our sin and the height of God's mercy and grace, when these two things come together, they explode. It's like a chemical reaction. When you understand those two things and we cry out to God to save us, that's being born again. That's what the Bible describes as being born again. 
And Jonah reminds himself of these two things. Notice in verse 4 and 7, his gaze shifts to the temple. The centerpiece of the temple was the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the, the Ten Commandments, God's demands for his people that we live lives of compassion and, and generosity and courage and purity and holiness and generosity. And when Jonah looks upon God's law, he knew that he didn't measure up. And all of us, if we, likewise, if we look at God's law and we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't measure up. We know we've fallen short. Yet, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a gold slab called the mercy seat. And the blood of a substitute was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat. And this is uh, a foreshadowing. It, it points to Jesus. Jesus' perfect life and perfect death, his shed blood is our perfect substitute. And it covers our sin. It covers our shortcomings. So we need to remember that because we fall short, we must ultimately put our hope and our trust in the substitute. The only provision for the forgiveness of sin is Jesus Christ. So what is the grace of God? It's being led into a place you don't deserve by an unobligated giver. How do we receive it? You call out to God admitting the depths of your sin and trusting the substitute, Jesus Christ. Our third question, how do we know that we have the grace of God? How do we know we have it? First notice that in verse 8, Jonah seems to imply that the saving love of God could come to idol worshipers. That it's at least possible they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is just one word for those two words there. But it's hesed. And it's the same word that uh, God used uh, to describe his saving love on Mount Sinai when he, when he met with Moses. When you understand the grace of God, you begin to see that you are in no less need of God's grace than anyone else, even social outcasts, drug dealers, drug addicts, prostitutes, a difficult neighbor, or even someone who votes differently than you. I was talking at length with someone at Community Day last year and they were telling me how turned off they were just by, by religion, just because they had friends who, who go to church and they're really, you know, committed to it. And she says to me, yeah, they just think they have to do all this stuff. I'm kind of like, yeah, I agree. It's not all about all the stuff you do. Uh, but in the same breath, she says to me, you know, but those other people, you know, uh, people who, who just do despicable crimes, particularly towards children, in her mind. Zero tolerance. No, forg you know, cut off. They should go right to hell. 
You know, there's, there's no, no hope for people like that. And in her mind, she didn't understand that while she was critical of other people having a standard, that she had her own standard uh, that she was very unforgiving with. Her basic belief was that you should be a good person, but don't try too hard. And if you've done something really bad, then there's no hope for you. But the truth is that when it comes to God's grace, a decorated war hero is just as much in need of God's grace as the head of a drug cartel. If you believe that, then you know that you've understood the grace of God. A person who understands the grace of God has, can, can look at a broken person and say, you know what? Before the grace of God came to me, God probably saw me as worse than that person. And so I know that the grace of God can come to them too. That's how we need to engage our community. Knowing that the grace of God can come to anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter who they vote for. When you understand God's grace, your cynicism, your superiority go out the window and your heart goes out to people with compassion, no matter who they are. Another way you can tell that the grace of God has come to you is in verse 9. When there's just real joy and thanksgiving in your heart, you, you know that the grace of God has come to you. This is, this is great joy. This is Thanksgiving. When, when you've been let in to the only, only inner circle that really matters, a place you have no business being by a God who has no obligation to let you be there, your, your burden's gone. You no longer have to worry about your performance, whether or not you're doing enough to measure up. It's gone. Any, any sense of self-consciousness, if you're looking at the grace of God, it's gone. You become more fearless because you're in. And you're in with the only one who really matters. And every other inner ring then becomes negotiable. You can take it or leave it because you're in with the only one who really matters. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not partly on him, uh, mixed with some of our own effort. It's all on him. Know the depths of your sin and the heights of God's grace. Call upon the Lord to trust Jesus, the substitute, and be led in. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we reflect on these truths in the moments that follow, may your spirit draw those here and online to yourself who need the grace of God in their lives. May we as a church be so shaped by the gospel that we are thrust into our community with joyful and compassionate hearts eager to share the gospel of grace with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.